Psalm 130. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. And with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his troubles. We want to give special attention to verses 7 and 8 from this passage this morning. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Christian faith, the Christian message is all about redemption. The story of the Bible has often been described as the history of redemption. It's the story of God's saving power uh, to rescue the perishing, to give new life and to new hope. The song of heaven, which we hear in uh, the book of Revelation before the throne of God, is this innumerable multitude singing a new song and saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that's what uh, makes the gospel good news. It's not a message about self-improvement. It's not a message about self-acceptance or self-esteem. It's a message about God, about God delivering us from a dreadful peril, about God accepting us in Christ, and about God working in us. Uh, to the completion of his saving work. And our theme this morning is this great redemption from our text. And we consider that Christ is an all-sufficient redeemer. In him is all-sufficient redemption. Redemption in abundance is our first uh, point. Abundance, that's a word there found in uh, verse 7. With him is abundant Redemption. And the word abundant means great or plenteous or numerous. The point is that there are great and numerous aspects or features to this redemption in Christ. First of all, it reaches to the depths of misery and need. You recall how redemption came to Israel under Egyptian slavery where they groaned as slaves under these oppressive demands that they were unable to meet, while newborn males were murdered in order to control the population of Israel. And you recall the story how the blood of a lamb that was smeared on the doorposts of the Israelites secured their safety from the uh, angel of death who passed over those houses that were marked by blood and did not kill their firstborn as he did in all of Egypt. In our text, we hear David cry to God from the depths of need. 
The opening words of this song are, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. We don't know the exact circumstances, but certainly he was very mindful of his own sins. In the book of Lamentation, we hear the words, I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Redemption reaches to the depths of our misery. And that means that however many our sins may be, and the psalmist speaks in another place of his sins being more than the hairs of his head, and however great our sins, redemption is as deep and as wide as our guilt can be. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? That's a rhetorical question. In other words, if God were to hold us to account for our sins, no one could stand before him. No one could stand up to his scrutiny and his judgment. But there is forgiveness with you. And this great forgiveness is celebrated in so many ways throughout Scripture. In uh, Isaiah chapter 1, we read, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In Psalm 103, we are called to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your iniquities. And then there is that most familiar passage in 1 John chapter 1. It says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity, all iniquity. That word all is often used with reference to the forgiveness of sins. He forgives all your iniquity. And the placement of that all there in First John is important. It doesn't say if we confess all our sins, he'll forgive all our iniquities. It says if we confess our sins, he'll forgive all our iniquities. Because our iniquities are more than we can count. They're more than we can confess. We don't know their number. We're often oblivious to the ways we depart from God. But if we humbly confess our sins, all of our sins will be forgiven. Redemption reaches to the depths of our misery and need. Redemption is by Christ's all-sufficient atonement. The Passover lamb, we know, pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how John the baptizer identified and pointed out the Lord Jesus Christ as that Lamb of God. And Isaiah chapter 53 is uh, the clearest Old Testament description of Christ as a substitute sacrifice for our sins. In Isaiah 53, we read such words <clears throat> as this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Later in this chapter, it says that his soul was made an offering for sin. He poured out his soul unto death. In the New Testament, in the second chapter of Hebrews, we read uh, descriptions of this uh, saving death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 9, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death. That's why he took upon our nature. It was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, 
that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. In verse 14, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. Verse 17, in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is, he was a sacrifice for sin whereby he atoned for our sin and removed the wrath of God that was against us. So redemption is by Christ's all-sufficient atonement and Christ is an infinitely great Redeemer. And that's an important consideration in view of a question that may arise in your minds at times. And that is this question. How could one, how could one suffer in the place of so many and deliver them completely? To deliver them not only from, uh, uh, temporal, uh, misery in terms of their alienation from God, and the feelings of guilt and the fear of death, but how could uh, one deliver a vast multitude from eternal destruction and to do so in a day? In a day he fulfilled what uh, Daniel spoke of his saving work. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And that's what Jesus accomplished, especially in those six hours in which he suffered upon the cross of Calvary. Well, how could it that one could make such atonement, make such satisfaction to the justice of God for a vast multitude? Well, the answer to that question concerns who it is who so suffered. That he is the eternal and ever-beloved Son of God equal with the Father, the co-creator, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. And when you think about that, and you think of the Almighty One, the Holy One, and the Innocent One, to feel one lash of a whip, to spill one drop of blood, to endure one insult from creatures whom he has made, it's a most amazing thing that a person of such infinite majesty and dignity should be subjected to the least amount of shame and suffering. What infinite value there is to what Christ actually accomplished. He suffered the accursed death. He hung naked upon a cross, having been scourged with nails piercing his hands and feet, thorns piercing his head experiencing the most excruciating kind of physical torture that the Romans could inflict upon the worst of criminals to say nothing of the darkness of his soul that he suffered under the sense of God's judgment and wrath against him for the sin of the world. How could he bear it? How could he sustain it? How could such suffering, even unto death, be of such value as to wash away the sins of all who just trust in him? It's because of the greatness of this one who suffered. And such a thought, such a a reality ought to make our hearts leap for joy at the infinite value of his blood to wash away our sins. 
And it really exposes how irreverent it is. It is really quite irreverent and is quite ungrateful for Christians to doubt the sufficiency of his death and how awfully unbelieving for sinners to despise the death of such a one and to fail to trust in this Savior for their sins. How this great redemption must move us rather to love and to revere our Savior God. There is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. We are redeemed from the depths of misery and need by Christ's all-sufficient atonement as the infinitely great Redeemer who also redeems us not only from our guilt, but from that guilt and corruption that alienates us from God. He restores us to God. He reconciled us to Him by His blood. So it is an abundant redemption that Christ achieved for us. Secondly, there is redemption that is yet to come. Verse 8 is in the future tense where it says, He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And we ought to stop first and listen to that from the perspective of of this psalm. And remember that when uh, this psalm was written, Christ had not yet come. The psalmist did not have the story of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. He didn't know about the shepherds and the angels and the wise men. He had never read the Sermon on the Mount. He had never seen Jesus' miracles or heard about them or learned any of his parables. Imagine clinging to God's mercy without, without the New Testament. Yes, yeah, Psalm 22 was written by David, and it speaks in quite detail of Christ's suffering. But the psalmist really didn't understand the depths of its meaning. And the psalmist didn't even have Isaiah 53 yet. That would come years years later. Yes, they had a knowledge of um, the Messiah, the one that was promised from the beginning, but their their understanding of who he would be and what he was due was very, was very dim. And compare that with the outlook of faith today. Because we can see how Jesus fulfilled those promises, those prophecies that are found throughout the Old Testament, how he fulfilled them in detail, how he fulfilled them to the letter. And we can read of his crucifixion, and we can read of his resurrection, and we can hear him say, it is finished. And we remember his death. This morning, we remember his death by those uh, tokens that he has given to us so that we might feed upon him by faith as the one who accomplished that once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. We remember redemption accomplished. And yet, we also look forward, because we remember his death until he come. Our sins are forgiven. They have been atoned for. The price has been paid, and we are justified by faith. But redemption from all iniquity involves yet more. It means complete deliverance from all the remnants of sin that still cling to us. It means the end of all its effects on our bodies as we look forward to what the Scripture refers to as the redemption of our bodies, our own resurrection from the grave, and the glorification of these lowly bodies. We look for complete deliverance from all the effects of sin upon our relationships 
upon our world. There's going to be new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so yet, yes, in that regard, the completeness of our redemption is is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So we also look forward. And in that view, this redemption gives a certain hope to us. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. That's really the um, the main summons of our text. And the rest of it gives reasons for this. But it's a call to abound in hope. The next psalm also ends with such language. Psalm 131, verse 3. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. The book of, of Romans, Romans 8, especially describes the Christian hope. And it does that in these words. It says, we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we are indwelt with the Spirit, and we have the first fruits of the fullness of that which uh, will accompany this uh, tremendous gift. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? In this passage, hope is contrasted with sight. We hope for what we do not see. It's also contrasted with uh, present experience. We do not yet experience the fullness of our redemption. But notice uh, that though the object of our hope is yet future, Hope is not contrasted with certainty, right? That's how the word hope is often used in, in popular language. Well, I hope so. I'm not sure, but I hope so. But the Christian hope is not contrasted with certainty. Look at verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. There's a certain expectation to the Christian hope. Christian hope is not a glimmer. Christian hope is not about possibilities. Christian hope is the certain expectation of grace, of blessing, of victory that is yet to come. It's yet to come, but it's not doubtful. But Christian hope must also be stirred to renewed vigor, right? Uh, that's a command we hear. It's an exhortation. Hope in the Lord. The psalmist is using his own experience. I waited for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. He knows what it's like to wait upon the Lord with expectation of his help. And he's received that help. And he summons all of Israel, all of God's people, to hope in the Lord. Always. In effect, he says, oh, be moved by the assurance of God's mercy. And so be energized with the assurance of redeeming grace. Hope. Hope against every every fear, against every failure. Hope despite all your remaining sins and faults. Hope against every sorrow and loss and suffering. When your personal world seems to be falling apart, hope. And when the world around you appears to be going mad in sin and misery, hope in the Lord. When you see the signs of Christ coming, and they can be uh, distressing and fearful, lift up your heads, Jesus said. 
for your redemption draws near. We have an eternal covenant with God. That's the language of our form for infant baptism, exhorting us that though we should fall into sin, we must not uh, despair of God's mercy nor keep sinning because we have an everlasting covenant with God. The blood of the everlasting covenant was shed for us. He by himself, as the book of Hebrews says, purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, expecting till all his enemies should be made the footstool of his feet. He has reconciled us to God, and he will complete that redeeming work. Amen.